That's a clown question, bro. Hi, what's up, Bunny? So I'm gonna kick some dirt. He gets on base. Just a bit outside. I'm not the type of player that's gonna be Johnny Hustle. If you don't want me to watch the ball, you can go get it out of the ocean. Welcome to the show to be named later, where we're talking baseball kind of whenever. I am your host, Chris Gianta. On the other side of the screen is Daniel Curran. How you doing, Daniel? Chris, it's been another good week of research. I think, we've, I think we outdo ourselves every week uh, with the research that we do on these players and teams. We've got a lot in store for you guys today. We've got Mickey Mantle. we got the 01 Diamondbacks, the youngest team to win the World Series ever. Yeah, yeah, and you mentioned the, our research. Our first, pay, our first uh, episode, first history episode was George Brett and the 2012 Tigers. And we did eight pages, and we were like, we were like oh my we, god, eight we are pages. on top of it, man. <laughs> and this last one was 16 and a half. You can round up to 17. Seven, it's down to the 17th page, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, we, so yeah. We figured stuff out along the way, needless to say, such a thing. Yeah, we have, we do have a lot. And, you know, I think making, there's a lot to, to, to research on Mickey Mantle just because of what he meant to like, you know, American culture mm-hmm. in general. But yeah, and uh, you know, not a lot of, not a lot of major league news going around. So not much to pay attention to there. Just kind of some more inside stuff that the public doesn't really know about. That's right. Yeah, it's uh, it's a bit weird. But yeah, actually this episode, I'm going to explain what we're doing before we get Whoa. into breaking yeah. tradition Chris. i'm gonna th- i'm gonna throw the audience a curveball here so because there's wait no wait wait baseball... hold on hold on hold on i go ahead uh because what are you trying to do there i just banged on a trash can to let him know that a curveball is coming oh oh sorry sorry my i think my audio is down a little bit but oh, okay but anyway um yeah we because there's no baseball going on uh as of now as of may 19th 2020 uh whenever you may be hearing this uh there is no baseball so we decided to go more history based kind of as a lesson to ourselves and to uh the the audience and kind of you know modernize how we look at you know these teams and these players so daniel has picked 30 teams, you know, like the 2001 Diamondbacks that we are going to be talking about. I have picked one for each 30 franchise. players. Yeah, he, he's done one for each franchise. I kind of picked my random assortment of players kind of based on era, position, what they meant to the game. Um, and, uh, you know, I've picked my 30 players. And at the end of every, every episode – we pick a number one through 25 now. Um, whatever number is assigned to the team, whatever number is assigned to the player, that is the team and player we, we will be talking about uh, in the next week. That is what we're going to be researching for the next week. And last week, those numbers landed on the 2001 Arizona Diamondbacks and Mickey Mantle. And first, we're going to be talking about Mickey Mantle in the episode description. If you only want to hear about the 2001 Diamondbacks, I have time-stamped it for you. So, you know, you don't have to listen to Mickey Mantle if you don't want to. Go right ahead and listen to the 2001 Diamondbacks. It's going to be 
going to be a That's very right. good half of the episode. So, Daniel, talk about the origins of Mickey Mantle. So, you know, Chris, when we talk about these, these American-born players like Mantle, they're usually from the main three states of California, Texas, and Florida. Mickey Mantle is actually not one of those guys. He was born in Oklahoma, in fact. Uh, and spoiler alert, he is the wins above replacement leader among all Oklahoma-born players, position players, I believe. Uh, and he was actually born to be a baseball player. He was named after Hall of Fame catcher Mickey Cochrane. Uh, so, I mean, baseball in his Cochran. blood already. It's Cochran, I'm sorry. Um, his father believed that managers would soon implement platoon systems, uh, which they eventually did. So he taught Mickey how to switch hit, uh, left and right, of course. And Mickey resisted at first. Uh, but his dad was a righty, and he would pitch to Mickey when he was left-handed. Uh, and his grandfather was a lefty and pitched to Mickey when he was right-handed. So he learned pretty early how to hit from both sides of the plate, which, of course, would be much uh, more useful uh, later on. He grew up playing Sandlock-style baseball, just like uh, most kids who grew up in his era. And he also played football, but he had to quit that uh, due to the due to an injury that he had, uh, which ultimately Ostium, led to... Uh, Ostomyelitis. Ostomyelitis. Thank you, Chris. I couldn't pronounce that. Uh, but it eventually led to a potential fatal bone disease. So he quit football, obviously. Uh, the first doctor actually said his leg needed to be amputated, but there was a second recommendation uh, of eight shots of penicillin a day. And he was able to keep his leg, thankfully, while playing baseball. Uh, I bet you didn't know, Mickey Mantle almost didn't even have a leg before he even got to the majors. He almost lost it on the way there. Uh, he played semi-pro ball Crazy. With the, on the Baxter Springs and a Yankee stat scout named Tom Greenwade uh, came to look at Mickey's team. He looked at the third baseman, actually. And Mickey hit two long home runs, one of them left-handed and one of them right-handed. And Greenwade offered him a contract uh, that would have to wait until after he graduated high school. But he signed a $1,100 uh, bonus and a $400 salary for the rest of the 1949 season. So now Mickey Mantle is a professional uh, starting out low in the minor leagues, uh, and he's in the Kansas-Oklahoma-Missouri League, the KOM League, uh, in that 1949 season. He hits 313 with a 467 slugging percentage. Uh, then he goes up minor league level in 1950, and he does even better. In 1950, hit 383 with a 638 slugging percentage uh, in, the, in those minor leagues. And obviously that made an impression on the New York Yankees major league club. Casey Stengel definitely wanted that bat in the lineup. And in spring training of 1951, you know, they're pretty much determining that Mantle is going to be a starter that season at the age of 19. And he was given the number six. There was a lot of hype behind Mickey Mantle. You know, it was Ruth. It was Ruth wearing number three. Then it was Gehrig wearing number four. Then it was Joe DiMaggio, who was wearing number five, entering his final season. So he was given number six, kind of implying something, implying that he was going to be the next Yankee great. And then, uh, you know, Casey Stengel was extremely impressed. You know, he finally got to see him. Uh, live outside of, you know, like batting practice and stuff. 
and uh, he was quoted as saying in the spring training, quote, he has more speed than any slugger I've seen and more slug than any speedster. And nobody has ever had more of them, more of both of them together. This kid ain't logical. He's too good. It's very confusing. So that leads to but Mickey That is Mantle. such a great quote. Like, this guy doesn't make sense. It's not, he's not supposed to be this good. Like, this is not normal. Yeah. And, you know, based on what he was able to do, you know, that, that statement kind of makes sense as well. And so, by the way, it's a miracle that he even has a leg. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, you know, making this type of impression. That's, uh, that's totally correct. So he makes his debut on opening day of 1951. That's at Yankee Stadium, and he's playing right field next to Joe DiMaggio. I mean, this kid's a 19-year-old kid from Oklahoma, and he's living out pretty much everyone's dream. Living out pretty much everyone's dream. And through May 18th, he's doing pretty well. Through May 18th, he has a 316 batting average uh, and an 872 OPS. You know, definitely a guy who – was very important in that lineup and then he starts to he starts to slump a little bit he starts to slump for over a month from may 20th to june 26th he hits 214 with a 659 ops and uh, that results in him having to take a seat on the bench and uh, basically be a backup pinch hitter kind of platoon guy for the next couple weeks and in that role, he went three for 15. And then he gets sent down, he gets sent down to AAA. And then in AAA, it gets even worse. He goes three for 18 in AAA. And everything is just falling apart for Mickey Mantle, this 19-year-old kid from Oklahoma. And he calls his father and he, he says, you know, you know, maybe it's just an emotional thing, but he says he wants to stop playing and he wants to go home. And luckily, uh, luckily for Mickey, he was playing minor league baseball in Kansas City, which is very close to Oklahoma, relatively, like in the country. And his father drove from Oklahoma to Kansas City and actually confronted Mickey at his hotel room. And Mickey kind of reiterated these feelings. And he said, you know, he, he wants to quit. He wants to quit. He doesn't want to play baseball. Like, you know, maybe go back to the mines of Oklahoma. And his father said, quote, now you shut up. I don't want to hear you whining. I thought I raised a man, not a coward. And after the incident, uh, Mickey, you know, without anybody there, he broke down crying. And then he, he called his father and said he was going to give it another go. Very good idea on Mickey's part. And uh, for the rest of the season at Triple A, uh, he goes ahead and hits 385 with 11 home runs in less than 40 games. I mean, that's like a, a 50 home run pace if Not you bad. put that over a whole season. Yeah. And then, and then he gets called back up to the majors. They figure, all right, he's right at his wrongs. And uh, they don't assign him the number six again. They assign him the number seven, which was probably a great deal of relief to, to Mickey Mantle. He didn't want to really be put on that. A little, that. little bit of less pressure. Yeah, a little less pressure. And he was, you know, as a 19-year-old kid, you, you, you don't want that 
sentiment around you. And uh, after he gets called back up, slashes 284, 370, 495 for an 865 OPS um, for the rest of that season. And the Yankees, of course, it's the Yankees in the 50s, so they're going to go to the World Series. That's just something that is going to happen. So they go to the World Series, uh, and then, then in game two, then in game two, uh, there's a fly ball to center, and Mickey's running after it. And sort of near the last second, Joe DiMaggio calls him off. So Mickey Mantle stops very suddenly, and then he get, gets a cleat caught in a, a rubber drain cover. And, you know, it, it looks like he just got shot. His knee is completely torn up, and he definitely can't play for the rest of the World Series. He has to watch the rest of the World Series from the hospital. But then, but then on his way to the hospital, um, or on his way to the taxi heading to the hospital, his father was trying to help him into a taxi, and Mickey put his full weight on his father, and his father actually fell to the ground, and both of them actually had to go into the emergency room and, and get checked out. And, you know, Mickey obviously gets diagnosed with torn ligaments in his knee, but even more severely, his father uh, gets diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease, and they watch the rest of the World Series together. Uh, the Yankees win that one. Uh, Mickey Mantle ended up getting surgery on his knee, but unfortunately, uh, his father died from Hodgkin's disease uh, soon after diagnosis at the age of 39. And, you know, Mickey believed in the mantle curse. The mantle curse was, you know, in his family, just a history of at least the, the patriarchal members um, dying very young. His grandfather, uh, his grandfather died before the age of 40. Um, two of his uncles died before the age of 40 and obviously his father had just died before the age of 40 and uh, that belief that belief for Mickey that he was going to die young kind of led to some self-destructive behavior because you know if, if you feel like you know your life expectancy isn't that isn't that high you're, you're probably going to put yourself more at risk and uh, you know that's that's something that was more recognized off the field and, and might have carried over on the field. You know, I don't think a lot of people realize like how tough Mickey's personal life outside of baseball was. I mean, losing your father like that when he's trying to help you uh, recover from a little injury like that, like that's, that's something that's never going to go away. Uh, and also, you know, believing like you're cursed out of the fact that, you know, everyone else in your family dies young. So it, it very well can happen to you too. Like that's, Honestly, that is something, especially in that sort of era, that can really like stick with you and stay in your mind at a lot of times. But yeah, you know, 1951 was a real rocky road uh, for Mr. Mantle over there. 1952, however, uh, was a lot more pleasant to him. He made the move to center field and actually led the league with a 924 OPS. He finished second in the American League in wins above replacement and third in the MVP voting. He hit 345 with a 1061 OPS in the World Series. Obviously, he contributed a lot 
to the Yankees World Series run, including the go-ahead home run uh, in the sixth inning of Game 7. Chris, I believe you have that clip. Yep. Yeah. Right, let's, uh, let's definitely an interesting interesting broadcast setup. They actually have the full – they have two full 1952 World Series games on YouTube. Pretty crazy. It's crazy. There's a fly ball out to right field. That ball is going, going, it is gone. And the Yankees are back out in front, three to two in the battle of the home runs. And there's Chuck Dressen over to Water Cooler. I gotta tell you, I kind of wish there was still like one 1950s baseball stadium still up. Not for like people to play in it, but just for people to like go visit and be like, this is what this is what it all looked like back in the 1950s. Oh, the dimensions are yeah. hilarious. Like I, I'm, they all got torn down, I assume, but I really hope there's just one still out there just for viewing yeah. purposes. I don't think it's true though. Uh, also, the next inning, he got an insurance RBI uh, to strengthen the Yankees' lead, and eventually uh, they would go on to win the World Series. Walked and then got the next two men. And batters. And the liner to left center. That's that's got to be Abbott's Field, right? It has to be. That's yeah, that's dog. Abbott's Field in uh, in Brooklyn. Figured, okay. Yeah, no, that one's definitely not still up. There's no room for it in Brooklyn, but I mean, I'm yeah. sure. I I really hope there's just there's just one up there. And like the announcer said, like 20 years old, already uh, contributing big time for the Yankees in the World Series. He was uh, the so that was, original Juan Soto. Yes. Uh, in 1953. He had an 895 OPS, which ranked fifth in the American League. Also, his wins above replacement was third in the AL. Uh, and he hit his most famous regular season home run that season. So according to the Society of American Baseball Research, uh, the Senators' home park was decidedly pitcher-friendly. The left field foul pole was 405 feet down the line. That's, that's a big center field in, the, in today's game. And behind that wall was a grandstand that extended 65 feet until it reached a massive sign uh, advertising National Bohemian Beer, which prominently featured one-eyed, uh, mustached face of Mr. Bo. <laughs> and he was the mascot for the brew. And batting right-handed, Mantle drove Stobbs' second pitch uh, high and long and incredibly fast. The spear easily cleared the left center field fence and blew past a 55-foot Mr. Bo sign, clipping off his mustache and continuing its flight over the rooftops of the houses across neighboring 5th Street. Estimating lengths were between 540 and 565 feet. So there's a rumor, I guess similar to the, to the famous Babe Ruth called shot. Did Mickey Mantle really hit a home run between 540 and 565? What does the stat cast say? What do we got on that? 
Yeah, I'm not trusting anything until we got that launch angle. Yeah, do we have and, the exit velocity? Do we have the apex? Yeah, if he hit that five, but if he hit that like 550 feet, exit velocity has got to be like 130. Yeah. Uh, also, the Yankees were back in the World Series, and Mickey drove seven, drove in seven runs in a six-game World Series win, four of which came on a grand slam in game five, uh, which obviously propelled the Yankees to victory on that day. Yeah, he comes up. Uh, it was a tie series, I believe, at the time. So it was very important. I want to know how they got that first camera angle, like, of his face. Wallace Myers' first pitch for a grand slam home run in the upper left field stand, making the score Yankees six. One. That one was filmed like it wasn't live. That was a weird one. I was going to say, like that first camera angle of his face, there's no way they just had like a camera in the ground zoomed up on him in 1953. Yeah. Uh, in 1954, uh, not much to it other than he had a 933 OPS, which ranked third in the AL, his war... Uh, ranked fourth. And then we uh, we take this over to Prime Mickey Mantle. Prime Mickey Mantle is something to admire for sure. You know, he was the American League's Willie Mays, you know, as a, for lack of a better term, best center fielder uh, of the American League for sure, best player of the American League during this time frame, talking mostly between 1955 and 1962. In 1955, he's just getting cooking. He has a league leading 37 home runs, leads the league in home runs for the first time in his career, uh, has a 1042 OPS, which also leads the league, and a 9.5 wins above replacement, which also leads the league. Um, and didn't get really much uh, – MVP love for whatever reason, but also a hamstring pull kind of limited him in the uh, third World Series or fourth World Series he was trying to play in. Only played three games in that World Series, and he went two for ten. That was, uh, that was of course, where the Yankees lost to the Dodgers, actually, uh, in the World Series. Didn't, didn't happen a lot, but it happened in 1955. And then in 1956, Mickey Mantle probably has his best season ever. He wins the Triple Crown, goes, bats 353 with 52 home runs and 130 RBIs. And he's the only Triple Crown winner ever. I believe there's, I think, 17 Triple Crown winners ever. He's the only one of those to hit over 350 with 50-plus 50 home runs. Also, he is one of two men to hit over 350, hit over 50 home runs, and have a wins above replacement of 11 or more in a single season. And that other man, Babe Ruth, number three on the Yankees uh, back in the 20s and 30s. And uh, also that 1956 season, the only season since 1933, only season since, you know, all the way back then, no one's done it since. Only season since 1933 
with a 350 plus average and 50 plus home runs. And he is, you know, also that uh, that season was definitely big for his wins above replacement. Obviously, had over 11 wins above replacement. Only six men have had seasons with a higher Fangraphs WAR, and those six men are Rogers Hornsby, Hannes Wagner, Lou Gehrig, Ted Williams, Barry Bonds, and Babe Ruth. And probably part of the reason why he had such a high fan graphs war is because of what he was able to do with runners in scoring position. He hit 444 with runners in scoring position, which is absolutely unheard crazy. of. Unheard of. Unheard of. You don't see that a lot. In fact, uh, a player had, had not hit that well with runners in scoring position, minimum 150 plate appearances with runners in scoring position since 1929 it had been 27 years since anyone had done that and then no one would do that well again until a george brett hit 469 with runners in scoring position in 1980 so that was the best best season with runners in scoring position in a 50-year span very good stuff from mickey mantle and of course he leads the league in ops and he leads the league in wins above replacement and wins his first most valuable player and it didn't stop there he was you know very good in the world series he actually hit uh, a go-ahead home run but that home run that home run was not the most memorable part that home run was not the most memorable part of the game and he was not the most memorable performer of that game for sure uh, and in game five, Don Larson is on the mound, and uh, he's he's got something going. Let's see if he can keep it going. So he ranges out and makes that great, great catch to save that uh, perfect game, only perfect game in playoff history. And ultimately in that series, he hit three home runs with a 1067 OPS and the Yankees ended up winning that World Series thanks to performances like Mickey's. That's right. And in 1957, he actually had a better batting average and a better OBP. And a better OPS, 365 average, 512 OBP, uh, 1177 OPS. But he actually didn't lead any of those categories, believe it or not. Uh, he stole a career-high 16 bases and had a career-high 11.3 war, which led the league. And he won MVP again. By the way, uh, I checked this last week, and 1956 and 57, Mickey Mantle, uh, the only non-exclusively left-handed hitter to ever have two consecutive 11 war seasons. Yeah. Everyone else who did that was ex- like Barry Bonds, Ted Williams, Babe Ruth, exclusively left-handed. Yeah, that's very that's interesting. Mantle. Obviously, he was partially left-handed, but switch inning. Yeah. Uh, in 58, he once again set a career high in stolen bases with 18. Uh, he led. He beat his previous high by two. Uh, he led the league in home runs with 42. Uh, he also led walks, runs, and he finished second in OPS with a 1035. 
and he led the league once again in wins above replacement. And he finished fifth in the MVP voting, uh, but he had 1,003 OPS in the seven-game World Series victory once again for the Yankees. And in 59, uh, a career-high 21 stolen bases. He just keeps getting better. Finishes second in OPS with a 904. He leads the, leads the league once again and wins above replacement. And in the 50s, uh, Mantle led runs and in war. He led all of baseball in runs scored and wins above replacement. And he was the face of 1950s baseball. I mean, you're on the Yankees. You're the best player. You're leading the whole world in everything. Of course, you're going to be the face of baseball. Yeah, he was, uh, he was big time and, you know, I guess, you know, I guess it's bittersweet because of the um, knee, uh, because of the pipe drain incident, he yeah. couldn't go into, he couldn't go into military service because of, uh, because of bad knees. So he could play in 1952 and 1953, unlike, you know, like Willie Mays and uh, even Ted Williams. Joe so, yeah, uh, DiMaggio retired after, after 51. He did go into the war though. Yeah, DiMaggio, yeah, you know, he went into the war. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he, Mantle was able to kind of keep that excellence in Major League Baseball. And, you know, we talked about it last week, Willie Mickey and the Duke, just, you know, post-World War II, uh, New York baseball was Icons. at its peak, was at its peak until, uh, until the Dodgers and, and Giants actually moved west. Um, but it was a great short period of baseball. And after that 1959 season where, you know, he leads the league in uh, wins of a replacement again, uh, in 1960, he leads the league in OPS uh, back in his rightful place, has a 957 OPS, and also leads the league in home runs with 40. But finished second in the MVP vote behind uh, Roger Maris, who, you know, that wouldn't be Roger Maris's best season, actually. And uh, in, 19, in 1960, it was an absurd, an absolutely absurd World Series. Mickey Mantle hit 400 with a 1345 OPS in that World Series. Also had three home runs and 11 RBI. The Yankees outscored the Pirates 55 to 27 in that World Series and lost the They're World still Series. Lost. Yeah, because they lost to Clemente. Yeah, they lost to Clemente, Mazeroski, uh, Dick Grote. Uh, and, you know, they, they blew out all their wins and they lost all their losses in, in very close fashion. One run games, two run games. Yeah, it was, a, it was a tough time there. Pirates kind of get a miracle victory there. That leads to... 1961, 1961, even with 1956, it might be Mickey Mantle's most famous season just because of uh, what it represented and his, and his home run count. So prior to 1961, the home run record was being talked about, uh, especially prior to the season, because eight games were added to the schedule. It went from 154 games to 162 games and two teams were added to each league so the talent was spread out a little more each team was a little worse their staff their pitching staffs weren't as deep so offense would probably you know individual offense would probably go up 
a little more for guys like Mickey Mantle and teammate Roger Maris. So Mantle wasn't really uh, on pace for Ruth's record early on. Ruth's record was 60 at the time, for those who are uh, unaware. Through June 20th, uh, Mickey Mantle had 20 home runs. That's on pace for 51. Meanwhile, uh, next to him in right field was Roger Maris, who had 26 home runs through June 20th. And he was on pace for 66, which obviously would break the record. And then through July 26th, you know, Mickey Mantle, Mickey Mantle goes on an absolute power surge. He hits like 19 home runs in like 33 games. It was absolutely insane from him. It was crazy. And Mantle is pretty much caught up to Roger Maris through July 26th. Mantle has 39 home runs. Maris has 40. Maris is on pace for 67. Mantle is on pace for 65. So they would both break Ruth's record. It would just be about who got there first and who ended up with more. And Mantle kind of, you know, he kind of plays like a normal player uh, for the next month or so, only gets seven more home runs. And through August 29th, uh, Mantle only has 46 home runs and he's on pace for 57. Meanwhile, Maris has 51 home runs and is on pace for 63. And then through September 19th, uh, you know, the record isn't looking good for Mickey Mantle. He would need, through September 19th, he had 53 home runs and would need eight home runs in nine games to break the record. Meanwhile, Maris had 58 home runs and would need three home runs in nine games, which was exactly pretty much the pace he was going anyway. And Mantle was pretty hurt. Mantle was pretty hurt throughout his career and he was playing through injuries. So he stayed off the field for, for a few days. Then he came back on September 23rd and he actually re-aggravated his uh, previous injury and yeah. he had to get a, he had to get a hip wound drained. There was something, something in his hip that had to be drained and something that was like the size of a golf ball. I, I'm, I'm no scientist, but it, Sounds pretty disgusting, actually. And he ended up missing most of the rest of the season. And uh, in that season, he actually led, despite losing, despite losing the, uh, the MVP to uh, Roger Maris, who won it because he broke uh, Ruth's record with 61 home runs, uh, Mantle led the American League in wins above replacement again uh, and was second in OPS not to Roger Maris, but to a Detroit Tigers player named Norm Cash and, uh, you know, finished second in the MVP there. And Mantle was only able to play in two of the five World Series games that the Yankees played that year. But the Yankees didn't really need him. Uh, They actually won in that series. That leads to 1962, where he kind of closes out his prime. Uh, He still is missing games due to injury. He misses actually 39 games due to injuries in 1962. Uh, But pitchers are really afraid to throw to him. He had a 24.3% walk rate. Which is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And he is one of five men to do that in a single season, minimum 500 plate appearances. He had almost a walk per game. 24.3% walk rate is 
crazy, crazy stuff from Mantle. And in that season, he was second in the American League in war and had a league leading 1091 OPS, 1091 OPS. And uh, he gets his third most valuable player award, award finally. He probably deserved, you know, one or two more between 57 and 62. But at least he didn't get, at least he didn't get job like Willie Mays did. Yeah. Oh yeah. 1962 was yikes. Was yikes. Yikesville for the writers in the national league for sure. But uh, I think they got it right over on the American league side. Uh, Mantle led the league in OPS with 1091 and he wins that MVP in 1962. Didn't have a great world series though. Uh, But the Yankees won anyway, because they're the Yankees. They win world series. And that season, that 1962 season, that caps an all-time eight-year stretch. Between 50, 55 and 62, it was all Mickey Mantle. He led all players in home runs, runs scored, walks, and most importantly, the god of all stats, wins above replacement more than anybody, more than Mays, more than Hank Aaron, more than Frank Robinson, more than Roberto Clemente, more than everyone and from 55 to 62 minimum 3,000 plate appearances which is about 375 per season uh he led in on base percentage with 445 uh that on base percentage was 40 points better than anyone else and he led in slugging percentage with a 616 slugging percentage that was 21 points uh better than anybody else and he led an OPS with a 1062 OPS, 1062 OPS over an eight-year stretch, led in that category by 75 points. That's absolute. 75 difference of points in OPS is night and day. He was on another. Like, it is, it is very noticeable when someone has 75 points of OPS difference. Yeah, especially, especially when you're considering an eight-year stretch. I yeah. mean, o- over 1,000 games played by everybody and able still able to maintain a a 75 point difference between him and the rest of the field. And he, in that 55 to 62 stretch, he led the American league in wins above replacement six out of those eight years. And uh, like I said, won three MVPs. He also averaged 40 home runs, 119 runs scored and 119 walks per year in that stretch. And of all, you know, this is all through his age 30 season. After 1962, he's still only 30 years old. And of all position players in Major League Baseball, his 91.1 Fangraphs war through his age 30 season is third all time behind Ty Cobb and Rogers Hornsby. Mantle was getting it done, and he was getting it done early. He was on a, he was on a pace to be the greatest player of all time. Probably, probably. Unfortunately, injury did set him back, which sort of prevented that. Uh, But it did set up for a nice little comeback. In 1963, uh, because of breaking a bone in his foot after crashing crashing into the wall uh, and getting his foot caught in the fence, uh, freak accident, but he only played 65 games that season because of it. Uh, But nonetheless, he finished that season, shortened season for him, with a 10.63 OPS, which was 152 points above uh, the AL leaders among qualifiers uh he had a 521 ops in the world series uh the yankees did end up getting swept in that series i believe uh and his yes. ops was 
actually above average for the team that series. I mean, dry spell offensively for New York there, but Mantle, Mantle a part of that, but somewhat better than everyone else, shockingly enough. In 1964, uh, he led the league right back with a 10-15 OPS like he never left, uh, but somehow he failed to crack the top 10 in war for the first time, other than 1963, of course, uh, since his rookie year because of bad defense, unfortunately. And he got moved out of center field in the last month of that season. And he hit a walk-off home run in game three uh, to give the Yankees a 2-1 series lead in the World Series. But the Yankees ended up losing. Uh, but Mantle slashed 333, 467, 792 with the 1258 OPS and three home runs with eight RBIs. So can't blame Mickey Mantle for the Yankees not winning the 64 series. Uh, no. And then he has a smooth fade out. In 1965, the team actually goes under 500 for the first time in 40 years. The team averaged 75.5 wins from 65 to 68, which is kind of a, a purgatory for the Yankee baseball organization. And they never finished above fifth uh, out of the 10 AL teams that in those years. And Mantle switched to first base in 67. Speaking of 67, on May 14th, uh, Mickey Mantle joined the 500 home run club. Uh, he, Chris, you have the clip of him joining the club, I assume. Yes. All yes. Right. Let's see it. He was definitely, not, and he hit this mark at the age of like what, 34? Yeah. Not a lot of people are are able to do that. Really, most most guys hit it a lot later. Yeah, Ortiz did it at 39. Here he is, also like. With the trot, you can see the type of pain he was in regularly, mm -hmm. just based on his trot. But here's number 500. The Yankees go on the road, won't be back until Memorial Day. May the 30th, doubleheader against the Minnesota Twins. First game at one. Here's the payoff bet. This is it! Gotta love the random kids just running on the field. Yeah, that's uh, that's how you know it's like anywhere between like the 50s yeah. and 70s. I mean, the ultimate highlight for that is just watching Hank Aaron break Babe Ruth's all-time home run record. There's just everyone coming out of the stands. It was uh, and it was literally like one guy, one guy just like shook his hand and said like "good job." It's, yeah, it's funny footage actually. So Mantle averaged a 386 OBP and an 836 OPS, still very good, and a 149 OPS plus with a 149 weighted runs created plus with 86 walks per year during that four-year stretch. Still very, very good uh, for his fade out. And Mantle was fourth in all of MLB in walks during that time, and he ended up retiring on March 1st, 1969, after a year where he ranked fourth on the Yankees in war. So he was still very good when he retired, but ultimately uh, he decided that enough was enough and injuries sort of just kept him from continuing on, unfortunately. Yeah, and um, he, gets, he gets his praise pretty much immediately 
1969, the year that he retired, uh, he had his number retired on June 8th, Yankee Stadium hosted uh, Mickey Mantle Day, and that was a very special moment for him. In 1974, he gets inducted into the Hall of Fame at 88.2%. Um, his post-life was very, very interesting, had a lot of ups, had a lot of downs. Uh, he started a few businesses, you know, restaurants. Um, he also ended up making money in just distributing memorabilia, mostly his own memorabilia, uh, made money, you know, signing autographs ultimately. And he kind of had to overcome his own habits that evolved from, you know, his belief in a mantle curse, his belief, or, you know, also his, you know, New York City post-World War II lifestyle that was, you know, party-centric, you know, go going out for, you know, long nights of drinking and then, uh, and then, you know, hitting two home runs the next day. But, you know, it, it caught up to him. And he actually had to go, you know, he actually went to rehab after his own son actually checked himself in. And, you know, he kind of became a better person, but just better as a person after getting sober. He didn't have the greatest resume as a person, you know, in the late 1970s or the 1980s. He was still a bit of an alcoholic and, and wasn't, didn't have the best reputation, you know, among his family or even just the general public, but he sobers up, uh, people start to like him more, just becomes better overall as a person. But unfortunately, uh, that, you know, that uh, aura of him, that him being able to kind of right those wrongs, it, you know, it lived short. He actually had to get a liver transplant and, uh, after he got the liver transplant or during the liver transplant, uh, he was diagnosed with liver cancer and it was very a very severe strain of, of liver cancer and he died within a year, died on August 13th, 1995 at the age of 63. But, you know, he died after being able to right a lot of, a lot of wrongs, you know, with his family, with the general public. Um, and not a lot of people are able to do that, which, you know, I guess that's a silver lining on his life in general. But back to mostly his life as a baseball player. I mean, obviously, he has one of the greatest resumes of all time. You can tout him as of now, probably the second greatest center fielder of all time. Uh, he is 18th all time in home runs with 536. And he is 16th all time in position player baseball reference war, 14th all-time in position player fan graphs war, 6th all-time in uh, OPS plus with 172 minimum 6,000 play appearances, and 6th all-time also in weighted runs created plus with 170 also minimum 6,000 play appearances. Mike Trout kind of messed up that, uh, that stat mm -hmm. there. And he was also you know he was in 12 world series <laughs> 12 world series so he definitely had his resume uh in the fall classic as well uh he appeared 12 times he won seven of those times he has the second most amount of world series games ever behind yogi berra second most at bats second most plate appearances 
but he leads all time in runs scored, leads all time in the World Series in home runs, also runs batted in, and he leads all time in World Series walks uh, to go with all of that. And overall in the World Series had a 908 OPS, so there wasn't really much of a difference between he was fine between regular season Mickey and postseason Mickey. And, you know, you also have to think about how he kind of affected culture or how the culture affected him. He was a representative of, you know, baseball, first of all. Then he was a representative of New York culture. And he was also kind of a representative of American culture, which, you know, you could rope that in uh, all in the same. You know, he he was, you know, all, all three of those things, he really hit it on the head. And he was kind of a, a unique story because he had the humble beginnings of an Oklahoma boy, mm-hmm. but he still embraced that New York scene, that post-depression, post-World War II New York scene where, you know, things are good again. You can go out partying. It's almost like the 1920s again. And he fully embraced that being a Yankee, being a Yankee in the 1950s was probably an insane lifestyle. And he definitely lived up to it both on the field and off the field. He would perform at an elite level after, you know, long nights of drinking. And, you know, also, you know, not even drinking, not even being uh, physically drained from that. He was hurt a lot. He, you know, he had a lot of ailments. You know, he, the the knee thing with the with the uh, pipe drain definitely hurt him at the beginning. That probably limited his uh, base running and and defense, but he was still able to do a lot there. But you know, at, at least at the end of his career too, every swing seemed to have a grimace on it, and you know he wasn't probably he probably wasn't wasn't at his full potential you know it's it's a unique situation with Mickey Mantle because like I said he's probably the second best center fielder of all time behind Willie Mays but there's still an idea of what could have been you can't say that a lot with a lot of Hall already Hall of Fame caliber players yeah you can't like with with Hall of Fame players generally generally they've maxed out their potential you know Willie Mays was everything Willie Mays could have been same thing with Babe Ruth uh you know you look at our you look at our guys I mean I think Albert Pujols is maximizing uh what he could be Miguel Cabrera Um, Miguel Cabrera um I think you know if you just go down our our list like George Brett Joe Joe Morgan Morgan. yeah Paul Molitor they all kind of maxed out their their level and Mickey Mantle had 536 career home runs 14th all-time in position player fan graphs war but there's still like an idea of what could have been could it if he didn't have those injuries if he didn't have that lifestyle could he have been a Babe Ruth type would we be putting him you know up would 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 there be a legit comparison between him and Mays you know career-wise where would he be on the home run list so, you know, that's that's kind of what makes Mickey Mantle's career unique. Um, just the, the whole lifestyle, the whole bravado, while still being one of the greatest baseball players of all time. 
and that kind of closes the book. I, I'd uh, like to say a few things real quick. Uh, I mean, right you, ahead, you kind of hit the nail on the head, Chris, with talking about how he didn't exactly maximize his potential. And the point that I was going to sort of lead into, which you implied, was that Mickey Mantle, in a way, was sort of underrated. Like, I mean, when you talk about the all-time baseball players, especially in that era, you automatically look towards Willie Mays, guys like Hank Aaron, guys like even Clemente. And not that Mickey Mantle is necessarily not thought about at all. He's definitely in those conversations as well. But he could have been like a clear number one among all those guys had he stayed healthy. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of ways to look at his career. I mean, you certainly think about the what if he was healthy the whole time. But, like, let's not forget, he could have had his leg amputated and he could have quit baseball when he was 20 years old in the minors, but his dad didn't let him. Like, this could have never happened at all, just as well as it could have happened even more. Yeah, that's uh, that's correct there. So, yeah, definitely a... a, a a unique story, you know, a good, a good story. The Oklahoma boy who becomes one of the great New York Yankees. A lot um, of people, a lot of people look at William or uh, at Mickey Mantle as like, you know, this guy who was an idiot and he drank himself out of baseball. And that's not necessarily true. Like a lot of people didn't really understand the stuff he went through in his personal life and how close he was to not being able to play baseball at all. Once he even was able to get to that major league level. And I feel like his personal life is very misunderstood. And I'm glad we sort of talked about this uh, to really open up that to the people. Um, but nonetheless, like one of the best players of all time, very much could have been better, but very much couldn't have been there at all at the same time. Yeah, those are, those are all good points you bring up there. And yeah, that kind of closes the book on our Mickey Mantle, on our Mickey, Mickey Mantle portion of the episode. Uh, we will be right back talking about the 2001 World Series champion, Arizona Diamondbacks. We'll be right back. And we're back for the second half of the episode where we're talking about the 2001 Arizona Diamondbacks who won the World Series in their fourth year. Fourth year. Crazy stuff. Daniel Curran set up exactly what was going on with that young franchise. So like you mentioned, Chris, they were an infant of a franchise, their fourth year of existence. Actually, in 1999, um, they had a 100-win season, went to the playoffs, and lost in the first round to the New York Mets. Uh, and in their third year, in 2000, they had an 85-77 and 77 record, which was 30 in NL West. And uh, Buck Showalter, their manager, got booted out after an 85-77 and 77 run on, on a third-year team. You know, without context, you'd think like, that they're in really good shape. But in reality, that's a down year for them. So Bob Brentley, a rookie manager comes in uh, to help out this, this young team. And they also signed Mark Grace to be their first baseman out of free agency. And he had the 20th best OBP in the league over the last four seasons. So obviously a nice pickup at first there for the Snakes. They also signed Reggie Sanders uh, to be their left fielder who was coming off a down year. So, you know, a bit of a buy low, uh, low risk, high reward situation. Uh, so this would normally be the part where I talk about how the team started in the regular season, but uh, it would be wrong of me to do that with this team because on March 24th, during a spring training game, I'm sure most of you might know what I'm talking about, Randy Johnson did something, like a one-in-a-million thing that you're probably never going to see again. This clip has been played so many times, I'm sure you've all seen it. Uh, Chris, why don't you go ahead and, and show the people what exactly happened on this March 24th date? I don't know if there's any sound on this. There is. There is. There's, there's visual.
Look at it in slow motion. Here. Wait for it. Bam! Oh my god. The cr hearing the crowd on that was hilarious. I've never <laughs> heard it with the crowd. I hadn't either before I, I put that in uh, this week. So, of course, I mean, that has nothing to do with the season really at all. That could have happened to anyone, but uh, it happened that year and I couldn't just ignore it. So, anyway, there's a bit of a dry start in the desert. Uh, the Diamondbacks had a 4-8 and eight record in their first 12 games. I know that's not, you know, much of a big sample size, but it was the worst record in the NL, or tied for it at least. And one of the main culprits was actually Randy Johnson. He had a 6.41 ERA uh, in his first three starts with a with a 288 average and an 853 OPS against in 19.2 innings pitched. And yeah, you know, it starts out pretty bad for them. Uh, their uh, Bob Brenly's stint isn't looking great. Yeah. But then I mean, making Buck Showalter firing, making look real bad. Yeah. You know, first impressions are everything. And Bob <laughs> Brenly certainly did not have a great first impression through those first 12 games, but he turns it around him and the rest of the club turn it around. They go 47 and 28 from that, uh, from April 15th through the end of the first half, the all-star break from April 16th to through April 22nd. Right, so right after Sanchez, the four and eight start. Yeah. Right. Right after that four and eight start, Reggie Sanders just turned it on. He slashed 421, 500, 1421 for a 1921 OPS during that week. Uh, had eight hits, six home runs, six home runs, uh, and a double. And those statistics obviously win him Player of the Week honors. And Luis Gonzalez, uh, who's one of their better hitters to begin with, uh, hits 13 home runs in the month of April, and that tied. Ken Griffey Jr. for the most home runs in April in MLB history. And uh, in, in that month of April, had an 804 slugging percentage uh, for that month. That's right. So on May 8th of that year, uh, Randy Johnson became the, he became the third pitcher, but the fourth time it happened to pitch a 20-strikeout game. Of course, it had been done by Roger Clemens twice and Kerry Wood before Randy, but uh, against the Cincinnati Reds on that May 8th night, uh, he was just about untouchable. Chris, you have a clip. Uh, let's see it. Should we, like, talk over it? No, we could just, we could just let Randy do the talking. Swing and a miss, and Ochoa going on 
So 20 strikeouts over nine innings, that means there were seven batters that got out on anything that wasn't a strikeout, which is incredibly impressive. Uh, Randy had a, a game score of 97 for that game with a line of nine innings pitched, three hits, one run, zero walks, and of course, 20 strikeouts. So for those of you that don't know what average game score is, it is a statistic uh, created by the one and only Bill James. If you don't know who he is, look him up. Uh, so you, every pitcher starts a game with 50 points. You add one point for each out recorded. So essentially that means three points for every complete inning pitched. You add two points for each inning they complete after the fourth. Add one point for each strikeout. Subtract two points for each hit allowed. Subtract four points for each earned run allowed. Subtract two points for each unearned run allowed. And subtract one point for each walk. Uh, so obviously this is a stat that heavily depends on it's good on high strikeout games like this. His game score was 97, uh, which is, at that point in time, was the best uh, game score in D-backs history. And today, there are four games in D-backs history with a game score of 97. Three of them were by RJ, and one of them was by Schilling. Uh, however, Randy Johnson actually didn't get a decision in this game. Uh, it was a 1-1 tie game uh, after the ninth, and Randy didn't come out back out for the 10th. Uh, but the D-backs actually went into the 10th, and they losing 3-1. to one. And in the bottom of the 10th, Mark Grace hit a two-run double to tie the game, followed by a Matt Williams RBI walk. And that is uh, how the Diamondbacks won on May 8th. And speaking of extra inning games, the D-backs played their longest game exactly three weeks later uh, in the city of San Francisco at AT&T Park. And it was the longest game in franchise history. And Arubio Durazo uh, in the 18th with a Brandon Belt-esque uh, RBI double instead of a home run. Mm -hmm. 18th Those, inning is a road player, though. 18th inning by both. Both, or actually, Belts was in Washington, not in San Francisco, but had a San Francisco influence. Mm -hmm. And he comes up in the 18th inning with a man on base. Just choked off a yawn. A yawn almost choked myself. 
Runner goes down the left field line. Bonds on the move. Still on the move. And it's a fair ball. Bonds gets it into the infield. Finley scores. And there's the first run of the game. And it comes here in the 18th. And we are not surprised that it's Durazzo who knocks it in. So that gives them their victory in their longest uh, longest game in their history. And is that still their is that still their longest game in MLB or uh, in franchise yeah, it history? It might be. I believe so. What also made that game special is they uh, took sole position of first place in the National League West, and manager Bob Brenly actually said in the 15th inning that if uh, the Diamondbacks won that game, he'd let them skip infield practice for the rest of the year. And uh, they never actually took infield, I guess, as a team for the rest of the year. Very, that's uh, something I love about Bob Brenly is two months into managing this team as a rookie manager, I've never done it before. He's already put that much trust into his players that he's like, you know what? You guys don't even have to come out for the rest of the year. It's only been two months and there's four to go minus the postseason. But uh, yeah, no, don't bother showing up for infield. You guys are fine. <laughs> yeah. And uh, didn't, didn't really hurt them in the end. Then on June 8th, Luis Gonzalez has a performance for the ages. Uh, in Kansas City at Kauffman Stadium. Gonzo gets one into left field. Pretty well hit. Bank goes to left fielder Quinn at the wall. He leaps. It's gone for a home run. Gonzalez has hit his 23rd of the season. And the Diamondbacks spread on top here with the first inning run. I'll tell you, some balls hit this first inning. Uh, the great catch by Die on the ball hit by Womack. A belt hit line one foul, just barely foul. And now Gonzalez goes to the opposite field. That ball just seemed to carry, carry, carry. Good down. Gonzalez deep to right. If it stays fair, it's gone. It's a home run for Luis Gonzalez, the second of the night. First base umpire, Bill Wilkie got a good look at it. You see Bird's upset. Home plate umpire telling Bird it was fair. Gonzalez is homered twice tonight, and the Diamondbacks laid it 3 0. Sacrifice for on a wild pitch. Gonzalez a fly ball to pretty deep center. Way back at the warning track, at the wall. He's got a three homer game, Luis Gonzalez. That's number 25. What a night for Gonzo. I asked him before the game how he liked this ballpark. He says, I like it. Yes, he loves it now. Well, watch his bench. His bench is really going to react to this. He'll be all grins. 25 home runs, three in the game tonight. Huge, huge day for Mr. Gonzalez. Um, and uh, he became the second Diamondbacks player uh, in their history to have a three-home run game. Um Steve Finley did that uh, on September 8th of the 1999 season. And uh, both of those games happened, you know, a little coincidence. Both of those three home run game games uh, happened on the eighth day of the month. So a little coincidence. A little coincidence. Uh, another cool moment that happened with this team on June 17th, Father's Day, uh, Tony Womack, the shortstop of the team, hit a grand slam and got emotional rounding the bases after he had lost his father 
uh, just two months earlier. Uh, Chris, we have a clip for that. Why don't you go ahead and roll one to Womack. And he lets one into right field. Could it be? Could it be? It is a grand slam for Tony Womack. So obviously Tony Tony Womack, you know, after losing his father, hits the grand slam for him on Father's Day, uh, and Womack also hit two doubles that day. And I did some digging, and this was one of two games in Tony Womack's career where he had three extra base hits. The other one came on August 9th, nineteen ninety seven, and he had three doubles, no home runs, no triples whatsoever. This, of course, he has a grand slam and two doubles. So this ended up being the best offensive game of Tony Womack's entire career on Father's Day after losing his father. Very timely, and it's really cool to see something like that. Very, yeah, very, uh, very cool. So now we're into the All-Star break. Uh, Luis Gonzalez, Randy Johnson, and Kurt Schilling are the guys representing the Diamondbacks. No surprises there. Gonzalez, a 355 average, uh, 443, 745, 1189 slash line with 35 home runs and 86 RBI. 30, 35 home runs is really good for an entire season. That's him at the All-Star break with 86 yeah. RBI as well. Uh, Randy Johnson, a 271 ERA and 202 strikeouts. Already at the 200 mark in mid-July uh, and 132 innings pitched. And Kurt Schilling, uh, a 320 ERA, uh, 160 strikeouts and 143 and a third innings pitched. Every single person here has one stat that would be really good for an entire season that they have in mid-July. For Gonzalez, it's home runs. Uh, for Johnson, it's strikeouts. For Schilling, already having 143 innings logged by mid-July. Are you kidding me? Yeah, it's, uh, it's wild. Uh, Luis Gonzalez beat guys like Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa, and Jason Giambi, among others, in the home run derby at Safeco Field that year. And Randy Johnson ended up starting the All-Star game. He went two innings pitched, one hit, no runs, no walks, and three strikeouts. And Luis Gonzalez went one for two with a single out of the leadoff spot. Yeah, uh, and that closes the book on the first half for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Um, kind of end up cruising to, cruising to the finish line uh, at, at the end there. Um, have a relatively good, not spectacular, but relatively good uh, second half enough to get them into the playoffs. They go 41 and 34 in that second half. And probably the highlight of that second half was on, on uh, August 23rd. Uh, Randy Johnson going with his yearly routine of getting 300 strikeouts. Just to stay in shape. Just to, just to you know, exactly. Just to stay in shape. Uh, keep things going. Like a warm-up round Hit for him. Routine. On August, by the way, August 23rd, he's doing this. 
and uh, still a full month left. So he's got uh, he's got what 297 strikeouts at this point, and here we are. Those three strikeouts. It will be the first time in major league history that a pitcher has done that in four consecutive seasons. Slider on the inside corner, and the way he's going, he's going to get 13 tonight. And there is number 11. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good night, action. Fuller foul on the third base line. I can't make a single mistake as it's 0-2. The 0-2 to Matthew. Swing and a miss. And that is the 12th of the game for Randy Johnson. Strike one to Jack Wilson. Swing and a miss. And Randy Johnson now ahead 0-2. Just look at me over slide on the outside part of the plate. Johnson fanned a side in the first, one in the second, the side in the third, one in the fourth, two in the fifth, the first two in the sixth, and here's the 0-2. And Randy Johnson has become the first pitcher in Major League history to strike out 300 batters in four consecutive seasons. And he strikes out the side in the inning on nine pitches. Wow. I mean, it, you just – if there's anything that defines Randy Johnson – I was going to say, is there a more Randy Johnson thing to do? Yeah, if there's anything that defines Randy Johnson from 1999 to 2002, it's getting your 300th strikeout for a fourth consecutive year on an immaculate inning. <laughs> <laughs> How do you do – That's it's laughable. It's crazy. It doesn't make and, any sense. By the no. way, Randy Johnson, he's one of the most he was one of the most entertaining pitchers to watch just to see how stupid hitters look. I don't like there were you know, there were probably better pitchers, but I don't think anyone looked more stupid uh than the batters who faced Randy Johnson. I mean, the swings that came out of them were insane. And Randy I Johnson, think- you know, definitely not the only star of that second half. Tony Womack, as mentioned pre- previously, in the episode, he really turned things up in that second half. He hit 327 with a three 370 batting average uh, in that, or three 327 with a 370 on base percentage. Uh, sorry, 370 on base percentage in that second half, and he became key uh, at the leadoff spot. Really was able to set guys like uh, Luis Gonzalez up very well at the top of the lineup. Uh, also d- doing that very well was Craig Council. Known uh, for having the best batting stance of all time. Yeah, one of the great batting stances of all time. And I think he was nicknamed Rudy during the season uh, for, <laughs> you know, kind of the grit of yeah. uh, of Craig, Craig Council. He had 286 with a 359 on base percentage and uh, became the everyday second baseman. He didn't start the year that way, but he ended it that way and, uh, you know, Definitely became key in the postseason, as we'll get into. And 2001 just riddled all of U.S. sports, uh, mostly baseball and football. Probably baseball the most just because of where they were in the season. And uh, Major League Baseball, in the wake of of, uh, the attacks of September 11th, they postponed all their games for a week, and uh, the Diamondbacks finished pretty smoothly with a 90, 92 and 70 record to win that national league West. So there were some very notable seasons for the diamondbacks, particularly some all time great seasons. 
Buckle up, folks, because you're about to hear the greatest offensive season to this date, not just in 2001, to this date in the history of the Arizona Diamondbacks. Luis Gonzalez in 2001 hit 325, 420, 429, 688, 1117 for his slash line. Him and Sammy Sosa in 2001 are the only men since 1932 to have a single season with 320 average, 55-plus home runs, and 140-plus RBIs. He hit 30. 346 with a 497 OBP with uh, runners in scoring position. The all-time D-back single season leader in plate appearances, home runs, RBI, ISO. By the way, his ISO that year, 363. The next best was 284 in the whole history of the Arizona, Arizona Diamondbacks. His slugging percentage was 688. The next best is 592. In fact, that 592, that was Cattell Marte last year. <laughs> Luis Gonzalez was still just about 100 slugging points better than him. Uh, his OPS was 1117. The next best is 1005. That was 2015 Paul Goldschmidt. His WOBA was 454. He leads that in Diamondbacks all time. Same with weighted runs created plus 173. Also wins above replacement with 8.9. Like I said, the best offensive season in Diamondbacks history. And yet he still finishes third in the MVP vote because this was the year that Barry Bonds hit 73 home runs. So it's not like you can really point fingers. Kurt Schilling. He led the league in innings pitched with 256.2. He had six complete games, which led the league. His OBP against was 273. His K-to-walk ratio was 7.51. He was second in ERA with a 298. Second in strikeouts with 293. He finished second in the Cy Young vote, and he also won the Roberto Clemente Award. So you got to wonder, he was second in a lot of those stats. Who could possibly have beat him? Well, of course, it was Randy Johnson. He led league war for all pitchers. Uh... He had a 249 OBP, or I'm sorry, ERA, which led the league, a 213 FIP, which led the league, an OPS against of 583, 372 strikeouts. His 372 strikeouts in a single season is third all time since 1887. And his 13.41 Ks per nine leads all National League seasons ever. It is one out of 4,907. And he, of course, won the Cy Young. Uh, Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling became the first teammates since 1885 to each strike out 290 or more batters in a single season. They became the first teammates since 1921 to have 8.5 or more wins above replacement. They combined for 18.9 pitching war, which was more than 22 of the other 29 teams pitching wars altogether. They were also the first D-backs pitchers to win 20 games in a single season. Uh, Johnson, Schilling, and Gonzalez ranked number three, number four, and number five in the NL overall in war, respectively. Also, Byung-Hyung Kim, uh, he had a 264 ERA and a 169 average against and a 571 OPS against after taking over the closer role on May 15th. So this, of course, leads the Diamondbacks into the playoffs. Uh, the National League Division Series was against the St. Louis Cardinals, the National League Central Champions. And in game one, uh, Kurt Schilling took the ball, and he went nine innings pitched, three hits, zero runs, one, one walk, and nine strikeouts. He had a game score of 89, and no, no one else has done that in the modern time in the postseason since Justin Verlander in the 2012 ALDS Game 5 versus Oakland. Steve Finley hit an RBI single in the fifth to score Damian Miller, and the Diamondbacks won 1-0. They're up 1-0 in the series. In Game 2, the Cardinals actually got the best of Randy Johnson. It happens sometimes. Albert Pujols took him deep in the first for a two-run shot, and the Cardinals 
ultimately won four to one series tied. Game three was the story of an unsung hero, Miguel Batista. He was a guy who had a 5.24 career ERA uh, with five different teams and also a three and also 384.2 uh, innings pitched in his career before 2001. The Diamondbacks grabbed him uh, just off of waivers, I believe, and he pitched Game three. Also, have, after having a very good regular season, he went six innings pitched, three hits, two runs, one walk, and four strikeouts in the game. Luis Gonzalez homered, and Craig Council also hit a three-run home run. The Diamondbacks won five to three. Uh, in game four, Albi Lopez started for the Diamondbacks. Unfortunately, it didn't go as well for him. Uh, he got lit up like a Christmas tree uh, for four runs over three innings, and the Diamondbacks went one for seven with runners in scoring position, bad offense, and bad pitching. The Cardinals ended up winning 4-1. to one. Uh, Game 5, uh, Kurt Schilling is on the mound, so you already know how that's going to go. Uh, nine innings pitched, six hits, one run, one walk, nine Ks. The game is tied 1-1 to one in the bottom of the ninth of Game 5, a winner-go-home game. Matt Williams leads off with a double, and Midre Cummings comes in to pinch run. And then Damian Miller bunted to move Cummings over to third, and uh, Greg Colbrun intentionally walks, which brings up Tony Womack. And uh, Cummings actually got caught stealing, but Colbrum moved over to second on that, which led Danny Bautista uh, to pinch hit for Colbrum. And Womack proceeds to do this. Look at Bob Renly. Yeah, you don't see managers doing that. No, managers do not. Like, picture like Jim Leland doing that. You can't. Imagine, uh, uh, imagine who's like the most. Ron Gardenhire. Yeah, Joe Torre. Joe, Joe Torre. Torre. Tony Larusa. Yeah, Tony Larusa. That's not one you're seeing. You probably anymore. think that was a that was wrong. Just yeah, <laughs> disrespecting the game. Yeah. So Tony Womack scores the winning run, or I'm sorry, he hits in the winning run with two outs. Kurt Schilling in the series went 2-0 with 18 innings pitched, uh, one run, 18 Ks, and an 0-5 ERA. Steve Finley hit 421 with two RBIs. Uh, Reggie Sanders hit 357, 471, 643 with an 11-13 OPS. And believe it or not, this series actually ended the career of a one Mark McGuire. That was how his career ended, was watching Tony Womack hit that walk-off. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that led to, not completely, but Albert Pujols would then eventually get the first base spot. But af- not till after to- – actually, there's a little connection there because in 2 the Cardinals signed Tino Martinez to put him at first, and the Diamondbacks actually ended up playing against Tino Martinez, and he played a big factor. That's but right. first, they got to face – the Braves, the team of the 90s, a team who is six years removed from a World Series championship of their own. And you can listen to that episode, episode number 35, uh, on whatever, Apple Podcasts or YouTube. And in game one, it is a matchup between two of the best pitchers of that generation, arguably the two best pitchers of that gener- generation. You could throw you know, Roger Clemens and Pedro Martinez into that debate as well, but Randy Johnson is able to outduel 
Greg Maddox. He, Randy Johnson throws a complete game shutout, allowing just three hits and one walk and striking out 11. That game score, 91. Almost, almost the same uh, game score that he had in that 20 strikeout game. And, that, and he was able to do that in a playoff game against the highly touted uh, Atlanta Braves. Mm-hmm. And how the, uh, how the Diamondbacks were able to score runs was uh, Luis Gonzalez RBI single and a Reggie Sanders RBI single. D-backs end up winning that two to nothing, and they're going to game two where uh, they lose their first game of that series. Uh, Miguel, P- Miguel P- uh, Batista, Miguel Batista pitched pretty well, but the bull f- bullpen was able to hold on to things. Uh, maybe a, a potential they folded. Potential foreshadowing as well, but the Braves ended up scoring two in the seventh, and they ended up scoring five in the eighth, and they ended up winning that game eight to one. Offense didn't really help either, but what can you do? What can you do? Because when you're going to Atlanta, you got Kurt Schilling, one of the greatest postseason pitchers of all time, maybe the greatest starter in postseason history. Kurt Schilling throws a complete game, nine innings, four hits, one run, two walks, 12 strikeouts to go along with with a game score of 85. Steve Finley, the center fielder, had himself a pretty good day, three RBIs, uh, which were three out of the five runs the D-backs would end up scoring. They end up winning that game 5-1. to one. They're ahead in the series two games to one. Then in game four, the offense does the unthinkable. They finally go off on a run, and it's against Greg Maddox. Luis Gonzalez gets himself a three-run homer, carries that momentum from game one against Maddox, into game four against Maddox and the Diamondbacks end up winning that game 11 to four. And the Braves are pretty much in dire straits after that. They just threw their best arm and they just lost that game uh, with not the best pitchers beyond that. In game five, uh, Randy Johnson pitches seven innings, allows uh, two runs, a Rubio Durazo, uh, hits the go-ahead home run for them in the fifth inning, which puts the Diamondbacks up uh, three to one, and everything just kind of stays in place from there, and leads them to eventually clinching, which is what I'm going to show you right here. Broadcast booth, not only here on Fox, but the Diamondbacks broadcast booth to take over his manager. You heard that right. They're going to the World Series. Fastest team, uh, fastest expansion team to ever reach the World Series. They did it 
took him four years. Uh, they mentioned Randy Johnson. Randy Johnson was awesome in that series. Had a 1.13 ERA in 16 innings. That's just two runs in 16 innings. Unthinkable. 19 strikeouts in 16 innings to go with that. Pretty par for the course of your Randy Johnson. Uh, only 19 in 16 innings. Probably, uh, probably below average. But nonetheless, spectacular. Craig Council wins the National League Championship Series MVP. He hits 381 with a 905 OPS to go along with two doubles and four RBI. You can't get a lot of count statistics when you win in five games. And Byung Hun Kim was untouchable in that series. Five innings pitched, no runs, three strikeouts, and was able to get two saves for the Diamondbacks. They are in the fall classic. And who are they facing, Chris? Well, they're facing none other than the New York Yankees, a city grieving. Uh, and this would, be, this would be the year where it makes all the sense in the world for the Yankees to win the World Series. And also the Yankees, they had kind of, uh, they'd kind of overcome some things just on the field. They came back from 2-0 against the A's in the ALDS. And, and they, got past, they got past the 116-win Seattle Mar- Mariners. So a very impressive team coming out of New York. That's the very next point I was going to make. Uh, I'm glad you brought it up. So in game one, uh, how, do you st- how do you take the momentum away from the Yankees team that had just downed the 116-win Seattle Mariners? You throw Kurt Schilling at him. It's as simple as that. Kurt Schilling goes seven innings pitched, three hits, one run, one walk, and eight Ks. And the offense explodes off of Mike Mussina, uh, highlighted by a home run hit by Luis Gonzalez uh, to give the Diamondbacks a 3-1 lead. Here they are in the World Series. One, two, pitch. Deep to right. Diamondbacks take the lead. Just a taste of what that uh, D-backs offense was able to do in game one. Yeah, I mean, there were 57 of those in the regular season, Chris. Yeah. Pretty good. So the Diamondbacks go, win the game 9-1 to and go up one nothing. Game two, Randy Johnson on the mound. Nine innings pitched, three hits, no runs, one walk, 11 Ks. A game score of 91. The last time there was a game score of 91 in the World Series – that would be Bob Gibson in 1968. If you're a baseball fan, you know exactly how that World Series went for him. Uh, Matt Williams uh, was the key player on offense for the Diamondbacks. He hit a three-run home run to change the game from one nothing to 4 nothing. It would stay that way. That was the final score, and the Diamondbacks won that game 4 to nothing. Chris, why don't you play that video? Yeah, I accidentally uh... – Pressed Premiere Pro. So if oh, Premiere Pro just comes up in the middle of this video, that happens. Uh, I apologize, but accidentally <laughs> clicked on it. But here you go. Matt Williams, still tight game, one nothing, facing Andy Pettit, the all-time leader in postseason mm-hmm. wins. Let's see what happens.
The Diamondbacks are going into the Bronx exactly how they wanted to. They're up two nothing. You know, if they if they just win one game in the Bronx, they're at the very least coming home just to win one. So game three, uh, the highlight of this game wasn't necessarily in the game, but the most iconic moment uh, years later, President George Bush comes out uh, just almost you know a month and a half after 9/11 and comes out and throws out the first pitch of the game and. We don't need to speak. This is a beautiful video. Why don't you play it? First pitch. And please welcome the President of the United States. That is a perfect strike. I mean, there's, there have been game sevens. There have been, uh, you know, perfect games on the line. I don't know if there's any more pressure on a guy to throw a strike than in that moment. Um, there's a story, a behind-the-scenes story, that uh, before George Bush went out, he was talking to Derek Jeter, and Jeter goes, if, they don't, if you don't throw off the mound, they'll boo you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can't. Can't throw it from the front of the mound. Hey, that was 60 feet, 6 inches if I've ever seen it. Yeah. Um, so in the game, Roger Clemens emulates his best George Bush and dominates. Uh, Scott Brocious hits a go-ahead single for the Yankees in the sixth. The Yankees end up winning 2-1. to one. That also happened to be the series score. Uh, in game four, Byung-Hung Kim is on for a 3-1 uh, save. It's a 3-1 game. He's on for the save, and he promptly – uh, gives up the tying home run to Tino Martinez, as Chris is about to show everyone. Yep, and yeah, I'll, I'll talk about it right after the after the home run. Here's Tino, one on, two out, pitch is swung on and drilled the deep right center. It is high. It is far. It is. That is the legendary John Sterling on the call. Yeah, that was a real – this was a very, very interesting game. And, mm -hmm. you know, Kurt Schilling uh, goes out there on three days rest. Uh, Bob Brendley makes that decision, uh, maybe controversial, controversial, maybe being a little too aggressive, uh, according to some people, because you have that series lead and, you, and you're putting him out there on three days rest. And he has a spectacular performance. He goes seven innings. Uh, 
I think he gets like nine strikeouts, only allows one run, obviously. And uh, he gets capped at 88 pitches. The Diamondbacks had – it was tied one-to-one when he, when he uh, came out of the seventh. And then the Diamondbacks scored two runs. A couple of relief pitchers came in, so there's probably long rest. And, you know, it was decision time for Bob Brenly. And you're deciding to go with the guy who hadn't appeared in the World Series yet, um, Byung Young Kim. Or you go with the veteran who's kind of on long rest, kind of on a high, you know, long rest for the, um, for the inning and, you know, relatively high pitch count. And he goes with Kim. And Kim strikes out the side. I mean, the fair argument to make with Kim is he's our closer. Like, that's what he's put on the team to do. That's your closer. And he strikes out the side in the eighth. And uh, Paul O'Neill, who's the guy that was on for that home run, he kind of hit a – it was an inside-out swing, and it, it wasn't the hardest-hit ball in the world. So Kim was riding pretty well, and, it, you know, it shows just how one mistake can really, can really change the game overall. It was a flat fastball, caught a lot of plate. And uh, that's how that's how it went for for Byung-Yun Kim in Game Four. And it yeah, wasn't, so wasn't the end of his night either. No, it was not. They brought him back out for the tenth, and uh, the clock struck midnight in the bottom of the tenth inning, uh, as well as the calendar flipping to November. This thus making that game the very first Major League Baseball game to ever be, ever be played in November, and Derek Jeter stepped up to the plate soon after. For the first time in the history of Major League Baseball, playing the World Series during the month of November, and for very good reason. Everything pushed back one week after September the 11th, pushing the postseason back, and now officially into November as Derek Jeter bats with two out and nobody on. Jeter hits it into right. So there you have it. Derek Jeter hits an absolute moonshot into the crowd at Yankee Stadium. I think that one went farther than Mickey Mantle's alleged home run. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was on the way up, and I think it, it hit the top of the roof up there. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know how. And, you know, also also a note, that was a nine-pitch at bat. You know, yeah. He fought, fought a lot and, you know, hit that thing. A Perfect ton. piece of hitting. I mean, just got really into that one. So now we're into game five, 2-2 two, two series. And Miguel Bautista is on, like I said, the guy with a 5-2-4 career ERA coming into this year, a journeyman just trying to fit in somewhere. Starting a World Series game, goes seven and two-thirds scoreless innings against the New York Yankees in the Bronx as a visiting player. And Byung-Hyung Kim is back on for the save. And Scott Brocious steps in as the tying run in the ninth inning, hoping to uh, repeat the actions of the previous night. That's one for 24 with runners in scoring position in the series for the Yankees. They're at second, two out, two nothing Arizona here in game five. Brocious hits one in the left. Back at the 
So in extras, this became the Alfonso Soriano game. Uh, in the 11th, the Diamondbacks had the bases loaded with one out, go-ahead run, of course, at third. And uh, Alfonso Soriano makes a great play uh, to save the game with a catch. Yeah, Alfonso Soriano also at second base. And I'm not familiar with the career of Soriano, but, I mean, he's been I was going to say, when I watched this video earlier, I was like, wait. Yeah. So bases loaded in extras. A lot on the line here. Momentum, everything. Danny Bautista at the plate. So that, of course, saves a run and eventually the game for the Yankees. And later in the 12th, Soriano is batting uh, with, the run, with the winning run in scoring position. And he is about to put the Yankees on top 3-2 to two in the series, heading back to the desert. Yeah, he's got a man on second. He's got to drive that runner in. Here in the bottom of the 12th after no one has scored yet. And here he is. On two and one. Into right field, base hit. Here comes Noblock. The throw by Sanders. Play at the plate. Yankees win. They lead the series three games to two. So the Diamondbacks are now heading back to Arizona, playing the two biggest games, hopefully the two biggest games. It might just be one. But right now, the biggest game in the history of the franchise. Uh, this is really the, the most uh, amount of adversity they've faced the whole year. They did have an elimination game in the division series, but they only had to win one game. Now they got to win two. Uh, granted, it is at their home ballpark, and they do have their two behemoths going on the mound. But uh, in game six, the Diamondbacks refused to die. They put 15 runs on the board. Danny Bautista led the way with three hits and five RBIs. Randy Johnson, I love how Randy Johnson puts up two runs over seven innings. That's like that's like a glance to us. It's like, oh yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's that's five seven ERA. Yeah, it's pretty. Yeah, good. yeah. You know why, why not? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Diamondbacks win 15 to two to force a game seven. So game seven, Kurt Schilling. Roger Clemens. Chris mentioned this before we started. Uh, probably the two best pitchers who are not in the Hall of Fame of yeah, all time. Whatever, for whichever other. reasons. Yeah, for which, I mean, I'm sure, you know, that wasn't the case. That wasn't on anyone's minds back then. But Yeah, and a little, little side note, you know, 
Kurt Schilling, a, a 2001 Roberto Clemente award winner. Pretty good guy. Great character. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to look at the character clause, there it is. Um, yeah. The game is scoreless through five. It's an absolute pitcher's duel. Who's going to blink first? Well, the answer to that is Roger Clemens. Uh, Danny Batista hits an RBI double to the center field wall in the sixth inning to make it one nothing Diamondbacks. But the lead doesn't last. Tino Martinez, same guy who hit the home run to center, hits a game-tying single the next half inning. It's a 1-1 game. Uh, Clemens' night was done, and uh, he departs in the seventh after six and a third innings pitched, seven hits, one run, one walk, ten strikeouts. Uh, in the top of the eighth, Alfonso Soriano once again plays hero for the Yankees as he hits the go-ahead home run in the eighth against Kurt Schilling. And the, the pitch he hits, I mean, Schilling did not make a bad pitch at Nothing all. Nothing wrong. It's... On a no-two pitch especially, you're supposed to sort of waste one, not give him really something to hit, and this is what happens. I derived struck out. Schilling has struck out eight. Allowed one run on only four hits. So there it is. The Yankees are on top in the eighth inning. All that, all that leads them to the finish line is Mariano Rivera. That's the only thing standing between them and a championship, essentially, is two shutout innings from Rivera. So Schilling departs after seven and a third innings pitched, six hits, two runs, zero walks, and nine Ks. Miguel Bautista then comes out of the bullpen for the Diamondbacks to face one batter, and he gets Derek Jeter to ground out. So then Bob Bradley brings in none other then Randy Johnson on zero days rest in game seven. Zero days rest after pitching seven innings the previous day, which I guess it makes sense to take him out after seven because you have him in, you know, you have 15 runs on the board. Like, might as well save him. But this is what he brings him in for. And, of course, Randy goes four up, four down. And all of a sudden, it's the bottom of the ninth. The Diamondbacks are down two to one. They're down to their last three outs with the best postseason relief pitcher in the history of baseball on the mound. Mark Grace, Damian Miller, and Jay Bell are due up. Grace leads off the inning with a single to center and is immediately replaced by David DeLucci to pinch run. Damian Miller lays down a sack bun, which goes right to Rivera. He throws the second, but the throw goes into center field, little to the right. Everyone's safe. Men on first and second, no outs for Jay Bell. Jay Bell puts down a bunt. Rivera fields it once again, throws the third, makes a good throw, and DeLucci's out of third. So now there's runners on first and second with one out. Yankees two outs away from a World Series, a double play ball away from winning the World Series with Tony Womack up. Here we go. Two on, one out, and Womack in the right field, a hit. Here comes Cummings, it's time. Going to third is Bell. Tony Womack delivers. It's 
Chris, if there's one thing I've learned about Tony Womack from learning about this team, it's that he did not crack under pressure. The best game he had on Father's Day, when it mattered the most after his father had passed away, he had the game-winning hit to send the Diamondbacks to the NLCS. And now he just tied the game with a double off of Mariano Rivera in the ninth inning of Game 7. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's probably the hardest feat to do ever, to score off of Mariano Rivera in the playoffs. More men have been on the moon. Yeah. More men have been on the moon than it, than have scored off of Mariano Rivera in the playoffs. And it's not like he didn't pitch a lot of innings. He pitched 141 innings in the playoffs. As a reliever. Statement. As a reliever, too. As a reliever in the ninth inning when when runs are at when runs are at the most premium. So uh, as Mil- obviously Damian Miller uh, was pinch ran for for me, Drake Cummings, who scored the, the tying run. Craig Council actually gets hit by a pitch uh, to load the bases, which got to be tough for Craig Council. I mean, he was thinking this is the opportunity of a lifetime. Men on second and third with one out for me to win the game and you're going to hit me. But, hey, force play on. The infield's drawn in. And if you're the Diamondbacks, who do you want coming to the plate? You want the guy who just had the best offensive season in the history of your franchise not just at that time, but also about 20 years later. Luis Gonzalez steps up with a chance to win the World Series and create history in Arizona. The chance of a lifetime for Luis Gonzalez. 2-2, bottom of the ninth. Game seven of the World Series. Bases loaded. Infield in. One out. Strike one. The one problem is Rivera throws inside the left-handers. And left-handers get a lot of broken bat hits in the shallow outfield. The shallow part of the outfield. That's the danger in bringing the infield in with a guy like Rivera on the mound. Diamondbacks completely flipped the script on baseball history. You know, the Yankees were three-time defending champions at that time. I bet if you turned off that game in live time in the middle of the ninth and you took a survey of like a thousand baseball fans, like neutral, just neutral fans watching that game, who do you think wins? Probably all of them are going to say the Yankees. Like that's just how baseball is supposed to go. You have Rivera on the mound. The Yankees have to win that game. The Diamondbacks flip the script. They do the impossible. They score two runs off of Rivera in the ninth. Probably could have been more if there wasn't, you know, a walk-off. But the Diamondbacks defy all the odds and win the World Series. Yeah, it's uh, it's something. And, you know, we're going to be – we'll be talking about this 
uh, you know, furthermore. But one of the greatest World Series of all time, probably because there were, you know, outside of game one and game six, it was tight pretty much the whole way through. Yeah. And there were three times where the losing team came back in the ninth and ended up winning. It was crazy, crazy drama. And also, you know, Yankee Stadium was rocking. Um, the, Bank one ballpark. The, the Diamondbacks ballpark was also rocking. They had a good Bank fan base. It was uh, on face field, of course. Yes. Uh, yeah, an insane World Series and in, like an insane story. Like it's your fourth, fourth year of existence. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're, you're, you're able to do that, you know, good on the GM mostly. Yes. Uh, so Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling win co-MVPs. Johnson 3-0 and with a 104 ERA, 19 strikeouts in 17.1 innings pitched. Schilling 1-0 with a 169 ERA, 26 strikeouts uh, in 21 and a third innings pitched. Miguel Bautista, the unsung hero of this team, zero earned runs in eight innings pitched in the World Series. A 173 average against and a 249 ERA throughout the whole postseason. The other Batista, Danny, had a 583, 617, 750, 1365 slash line in the World Series. Steve Finley, a 368 uh, average with a 1005 OPS in the World Series. Shilling throughout the postseason, 4 0, a 112 ERA. Six runs in 48 and a third innings pitch. That's about a run every eight innings, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and 56 strikeouts. A 150, 184, 251, 435 slash line against. Average game score of 78. The most strikeouts ever in a postseason run. The most wins, win probability added ever in a postseason run. Johnson had the third most strikeouts and the fourth most win probability added ever in a postseason run. So the legacy of this team, they were dead to rights after game five in New York. They weren't supposed to win game six and seven with Pettit and Clements on the mound. And they sure as hell were not supposed to come back against Rivera in the ninth of game seven. This team never quit. And of course, they will, as of now, always hold the legacy of the youngest team to win the World Series. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, the Diamondbacks, I think it's one of the better in terms of circumstances, it's one mm-hmm. of the better um, constructed teams uh, in MLB history. You know, it, it also shows us the um, amount of stardom that can get you in certain places. They had three of the best players in the league overall, you know, mm-hmm. pitchers and position players. They had Gonzalez, Schilling. Uh, Schilling and Johnson were the best two pitchers probably in the MLB at the time in, in 2001. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's, um, it's something, something to admire, especially, you know, you know just from a management sense and uh, Bob uh, Brenly seemed to be the perfect manager for that bunch. Yeah. Um, kind of a loose group, good amount of experience, good amount of young talent, um, just a great overall team and good with adversity as well. Exactly. And like Chris mentioned before, they won what some people say was the greatest World Series of all time. Uh, You know, a lot of drama in most of the games. I mean, the Yankees coming back twice in a row. Uh, The Diamondbacks completely flipping the script in game seven. 15 runs scored in game six, even. Um, You know, this will always, like, be the team that just did what they weren't supposed to do. 
and it's in such a good way. And there's yeah, so you're, I mean, not, you're not supposed to lose two consecutive games after leading in the ninth inning and then come back and win that series. Yeah. You're not like supposed you're, to do that. You're supposed to lay down and die after losing two games like that. Yeah, it's and and you're not you're not supposed to come back against the greatest closer of all time in the no. in game 7 of the World Series. So the Arizona Diamondbacks of 2001, they they went their own way. That's as simple as we can put it. That's their legacy. And just before we close the book on them, uh, I have a little bonus video here. MLB Network a few years ago uh, did a video with Luis Gonzalez where he narrated uh, everything that happened in the ninth inning of game seven, and they reenacted it with drones at Chase Field, and it was really cool. Uh, So we're going to watch this video and then close the book. seven of the 2001 World Series, one of the best series ever. Series tied at three to three, Roger Clemens against Kurt Schilling right here at Chase Field. With the score tied at zero, bottom of the six, Danny Batista at the plate, Steve Finley at first. Danny Batista hits a line drive into left center field and Steve Finley scores to put us up one to nothing. The only thing that kept us from scoring more runs was an amazing play by Derek Jeter throwing out Danny Batista at third base. With a score tied at one in the top of the eighth, Alfonso Soriano took an 0-2 pitch from Kurt Schilling into the left field bleachers for a 2-1 lead. In the top of the eighth with two outs, the Yankees up 2-1, Bob Bremley decides to bring in Randy Johnson. He had only had 11 career relief appearances, and he had thrown 100-plus pitches the night before. With the Yankees up 2-1 to one in the bottom of the eighth, Joe Torre decides to bring in the all-time reliever, Mariano Rivera, with 23 straight saves in postseason play. In the bottom of the eighth, Mariano Rivera struck out the side, including me. But in the bottom of the ninth, Mark Grace led off with a single up the middle. And it's for Arizona. Grace with its third hit. saying he had a feeling about Mark Grace with the runner on first in the bottom of the ninth, the next batter bunted right back to Mariano Rivera. He tried to get the runner out at second and threw it away. All runners were safe. First and second, nobody out. Another bunt back to the pitcher, Mariano. This time, he got the runner out at third base. The next batter was Tony Womack. He took a pitch down the right field line for a double to tie the game at two. After Craig Council got hit by a pitch, the infield was drawn in with bases loaded one out, and I got my second chance at Mariano Rivera. At that point in the game, I was hitless with two strikeouts. I didn't want to fall behind with Mariano Rivera on the mound. The first pitch, I fouled off. The second pitch, I knew the cutter was coming again, and I got just enough of it to hit it over Derek Jeter's head into short left center field for the game winning hit. Once the ball left my bat, I knew it was going to fall into short left center field. Game seven of the World Series, a childhood dream to be able to get the game-winning hit off of one of the best relievers of all time, Mariano Rivera, our first world championship here in the state of Arizona, a night we will never forget.
So that's a nice, uh, cool little video there. Uh, interesting. Close the interesting. On the 2001 Arizona Diamondbacks, this was another really fun team um, to look at. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a the last, the last two uh, teams we've done, two greatest uh, postseason runs by a pitcher, and then Randy Johnson is also right up there with mm-hmm. Mad Bum and Schilling. So just a pleasure to talk about there. Yeah, that's right. So it is time for our is our favorite time of the show. Yeah, our favorite time of the show. I don't have to explain it right now because I explained it at the beginning of the show. Explaining that is always pretty tiring. It takes like so many words involved. But uh, uh, I already forgot. First. I'm picking. I'm picking first. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, and if I'm picking first, then I am going to go with number ten. Number ten. Oh yes. This was the team. Okay. When I made this list, I sort of had like a rank of teams that I, I really wanted you to pick. This team was number one on that list. So I mean, you know what? Next week is my birthday. So I guess this is my birthday present. Yes. You know, Chris, we've gone over a lot of different teams in this time. We've gone through a lot of different scenarios. We have a game seven world series walk-off. We've gone through um, MVP seasons, Cy Young seasons, you know, Madison Baumgartner's run, uh, just incredibly great seasons, but never before have we done a team that literally saved baseball in their city. I'm talking about the 1995 Seattle Mariners. We get more Randy Johnson talk on this show. Yes, we get, yeah, we get more Randy Johnson talk and yeah, I'm willing to talk about Randy Johnson, uh, anytime we need to. So yeah, saved baseball in Seattle, Ken Griffey Jr., Alex Rodriguez, Edgar Martinez, Randy Johnson. Jay Buhner. A stacked team. I'm looking forward to Cora. Yeah, I'm looking forward to watching that game five uh, this upcoming week for sure. All right, it is your turn to determine the player we will be talking about next week. We're going to go with player number 24. Player number 24. All right, this is going to be a good episode. This man is a two-time MVP. Okay. He is a two-time war winner. And he is the all-time leader in on-base percentage, Ted Williams. Oh, Oh, man. You – I didn't realize we were going this far back with this show. I love it, though. Ted Williams. Yeah, this is our earliest – earliest of the show – thus far perfect there's a thing yeah i'm excited yeah this is this is one of the ones i was more excited for as well yeah this is going to be this is going to be a good one for sure all right all right i love it um so yeah that leads us to the conclusion of this show i hope you enjoyed our episode well we did mickey mantle and the 2001 Arizona Diamondbacks. Uh, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts, um, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, it is called STB Now with Christianta and Daniel Curran. You can follow us on Twitter. I am at Chris underscore Gianta. Daniel is at Daniel underscore Curran. 
and we will be looking forward to uh we will be looking forward to talking to you i will be very much looking forward to this talking to you guys next week about ted williams and the 1995 seattle mariners see you next week